Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, colleague, and good friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Are are your vibes as immaculate as it seemed as though the Pacers <laughs> vibes were? I uh I I think so. I, I feel like I'm all over the place uh in the last couple of days. My work week is everywhere i first i mean to to everyone listening i hope you guys had a great thanksgiving however you spent it or did not um i just hope everything's well on your end um i have like another random work thing i'm gonna have to do this weekend so like my, my again all over the place but i think vibes are are pretty fantastic i was telling you i was uh i was doing the daily ding for the athletic yesterday so that means staying up watching every single game and of course the pacers had the last tip they were down 17 and i won't lie i fell asleep watching the game and woke up with about 70 seconds left and witnessed whatever the hell that was. Um, and I of course went back and rewatched it today so that I actually have a real memory of everything that happened leading up to that. Um, that game was crazy. Like I, as soon as I woke up this morning and I kind of got my bearings, uh, I texted you and was like, yeah, I think we have to do a podcast today because that game just happened. The Pacers are 12 and eight. They're fourth in the Eastern Conference. And it feels like every time we start talking about, well, you know, the, the things are the tides are going to turn and this team's going to, you know, kind of settle back in and get back to where they're supposed to be, um, you know, being a little bit more of like not, you know, not this team. And every time it looks like that's going to happen, it doesn't. Um, so here we are a quarter of the way through the season and the team is uh, currently fighting for home court advantage in the playoffs. I guess my first thing to you would be, I mean, what is your reaction to that? And then we can dive deeper into the game. My reaction to that is highly surprised. And I would say like, I guess if there's some really optimistic listeners out there who saw this coming, like kudos to you, maybe you should be working in a front office somewhere. I don't really think that the Pacers front office even saw this coming. I'm sure that they definitely believe in the talent that they have in that locker room and foresaw, mm-hmm. you know, a potential all-star status for Tyrese Halliburton. I don't doubt that at all. But like, if we just think back to media day, like I know that Kevin Pritchard had given comments about like the trade deadline and how they knew there wasn't going to be a quick fix that like they couldn't just make moves around the margins and, and get back to where they wanted to be, that they knew that they had to do something. This is my word, not his, but more dramatic than that. And that, you know, that this was going to take patience. That was a word that was used a lot talking about looking at three and four year increments was used. Like the idea that, you know, they weren't going to be judging success necessarily by wins and losses, but by the progress that the players on the team were making, it felt very much like they were bracing us for a rebuild, even all the way down to what the new uniforms are with, you know, the reconstruction of, of bankers life or Gamebridge Fieldhouse on the front of them mm-hmm. felt very much like we were branding this as a young team that was going to be building along with, you know, the new building being renovated. So um, I don't even know that they necessarily foresaw it coming. I mean, I definitely think it's a fun product that people are seeing night in and night out. There's no denying that. I mean, I'm, I'm still wired from it. I stayed up all night to watch the Andrew Nemhard or to write the Andrew Nemhard article. And, and it I was had fantastic. To do- 
I had to do morning work this morning and now I'm back preparing for this podcast and you would think that I'd be asleep right now, but like, maybe I'm just ready to go storm my living room. Have you stormed <laughs> your basement or, or wherever you uh, are right now? Uh, well, me and my dog ran around the, uh, the front yard this morning. So I think that's a, that's, you know, as, that as much of a facsimile as we're going to get here. Um, yeah, I, where do you even go from here? Like, I think, because I, I I mean, we can start small, we can start big, like there's a million things to dive into with this. I think the biggest thing that you just hit on for me is what I want to hit on as well. Like, this has been fun. Like we've, we've talked about it, but this 22 game stretch has been the most fun I've had watching the Pacers since 2017-18. Um, like without question, I, I think for me, that's where I'm at. Because obviously, even in 2018-19, Vic gets hurt. Like there's still the fun stretch when... You know, Bojan is doing the crazy heavy lifting on 50, 40, 90. And they remember actually very random. Remember, I think it was like two or three days after they signed Wes Matthews and they beat Oklahoma City with Paul George. Um, that was a yes. very fun game. Yes. What a, that was a hell of a game, actually. Um, but point being, like this this stretch has been awesome. Like the play style has been really fun. The vibes have clearly been good. Um, and so I don't mean to sound like the the bearer of bad news or whatever, but it's just it feels really hard to not look at this similarly to what 2017-18 was. Well, noting there are some differences still, like I think that team had more in terms of what they could do at a higher level. Not, I don't know. I, I guess that's harder to decipher. Like, I, I think, I, I don't think that this team is quite as talented as that team was in terms of depth. Like they have guys who can play, but um, in terms of just actual roster construction, I don't know if they're quite there. Um but it's more just like, I don't know what this means. I don't know if it's a good or a bad thing. I think it seems like there's a lot of black and white when it comes to what a team should or shouldn't do um, in talking about it. But I feel like there's a lot of gray area here. Um, I, I think you and I would probably both, not to speak for you, I would definitely lean towards thinking like, I don't know if this is <laughs> the direction that I envisioned or, or thought this team could take or should be taking. And I, especially after some comments last night, I am just curious on what the team thinks their goal is for this year. Now, if that's maybe changed at all, um, I would probably be a little bit cautious on if that has changed. Uh, but, and again, that's not at all to speak down on what the team has been. This has been a delight, but I just, in terms of talking about what the long-term goal is for the team, I am curious to see if they make changes in the short term um that we're not foreseen at, around media today yeah i mean i think as a front office you constantly have to not get too high or too low i do think from like an ownership standpoint or a governor standpoint i guess i should say that like when you're seeing stuff like what happened last night it would be harder i think to with a fan base that's re-engaged at least my sense on twitter which you know is highly scientific in judging <laughs> these types of things is that the fan base is a lot more engaged with this team early in the season than they were at any point last year, including yeah. after the trade deadline. Like there was a little bit of a bubble there right after that trade deadline happened and people wanted to see Tyrese. And then once they sank back and, you know, it was clear that Miles and TJ Warren, Malcolm Brogdon were going to be playing and people knew what the rest of that season was about. People kind of tuned out again, but that's not, that doesn't seem to be the case. People feel, seem really engaged. And, you know, I felt like last year, the difference for me was everyone was talking about like, you know, they're not winning the clutch games and a lot of that could be bad luck. 
And, you know, their net rating and their point differential are still a, a team that's, you know, a good team potentially. And I was watching the, the on-court actual product and seeing what was going on in those minutes. And I wrote the piece about like, basically the clutch team is what they're doing in the clutch is their identity. And there's reason to wonder if the ceiling is going to be higher than that. And then, you know, talked about all the reasons why after they had that really bad loss to the heat where like Karis and Sabonis kind of had the argument, um, about the pick and roll coverage and people were fans were booing. And like, it was just like, it was not what a good a vibes game. Yeah. yeah. It was not a good vibes game. The opposite of the Lakers game last night. And I, this was like, you know, I would understand if they wanted to pull the plug and then like, lo and behold, there the rumors came out that, you know, they were listening on Sabonis and miles and, and Karis at the very least. So now it's kind of the reverse where like, I'm being honest with everybody. I still don't completely know what to make of this. Like night to night, like you can watch that Clippers game and it's exactly what you said before. Like you can watch it through and, and get to the end and be like, yeah, there's a lot of shot variants here. I think they're like nine of 42 from three overall. I think this is a good shooting team. They're going to have some nights like that because they, they take shots on high volume, but you can probably bet on, you know, enough people being hot that, you know, their identity can continue to be what their identity is, at least on the offensive end of the floor. But like you see that and it's what you said, like you think that they're going to regress or that maybe this road trip will be somewhat illuminating. And then, you know, they do what they did against the Lakers the other night, which I'm sure we'll get into the context of that. And that's what makes it even more difficult is because I'm kind of watching this through some of the opponent lenses as well and wondering like, okay, what if that team did this different? Would yeah. the, would the Pacers be able to still keep up if that had happened? And it's, it's creating like, just as a, from an analysis standpoint, like obviously I'm not making any team building or roster construction decisions. I can understand why it would be difficult for the Pacers at this current juncture to fully know what this team is, even though it's, I mean, they've definitely over exceeded my expectations. I mean, everybody knows they can go back and listen to the podcast I've been on. I did not anticipate them being firmly in playoff position as they currently are right now through this many games of the season. Yeah, not in the slightest. Um, I think that's what's been so fascinating because, like you mentioned, I think yesterday that's what's so difficult because this team, and again, it's not the exact same team as 17-18, but it just yesterday is one of those games where it just stuck in my head so much in watching them because I was like, this is a team that it sounds cliche, but like very clearly is not going to not compete. Like that's not going to be a problem with them. Like they've had effort problems at times. Like that's, I think, every team, but yesterday like that fourth quarter that fourth i mean anthony davis what touched the ball twice down the stretch in like the last eight minutes they i lebron crossed half court to get back on defense like four or five times maybe in the fourth quarter their shot selection was really rough they just divulged into isolation basketball um and again it's that's not to take away from what the pacers did at all the pacers won that game but the lakers also lost the game and i think like that's just when I look at those things, especially when you're looking at what the playoffs are, those aren't things that I think where you and I believe are going to be on the table for the Pacers to take advantage of in the playoffs, um, which is what makes it, you know, if the, if you're looking at from the angle of, well, what if this team made a playoff run? I just question what that looks like. Like, I think there's obviously you want to get the, the idea of getting Benedict and, and Tyrese uh, playoff minutes is that's I, I can't. I can't, you know, rage against that machine. Like, I think that that's interesting. But I also think, like we talked about on multiple pods, when I continue to watch what Tyrese and Benedict are doing right now, it just makes me think that I want to be even more all in on what this is going to be and making sure that you provide that by getting a higher draft pick. And I don't, 
I don't know. Uh, like, I think just trying to cross that line and is is what makes it interesting. But I still, I still very much find myself in that vein because, again, you can look at the positive things that are happening night in, night out, and also note that there's room for them to really improve. Like, there are things where they're really missing. Like, I, um, and, and I, I love your your article on Andrew was awesome. But I think I look at that and I'm like, Andrew Nemhard is the guy who was having to be the main point of attack stopper for this team right now. And he's been good at it. He's done a good job. But I think again, like when we're talking about like at the highest levels, I just, uh, it makes me scratch my head a little bit um, because this team has thrived in spite of a lot of their current, you know, awkwardness on the roster with what, with what the bill is, but it's still just, it's, it's a, this team is vexing to me sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I think in the fourth quarter last night, like, I'm sure that LeBron's ankle probably factored into some of that, which is another thing you have to take into account because yeah. I do agree with you. He wasn't necessarily getting back, though that can somewhat be his habit at times. Regardless, it seems that he can get kind of passive aggressive in settings where mm-hmm. um, things aren't going right all the time. But I did think that there was a couple moments where, like, he settled for a one legged floater against. TJ McConnell, like right around the basket where it just didn't seem like he had lift off of that foot to me. So that might've been playing into some of it for him, but the process was just bad for the Lakers on a few of those possessions. Like one of my favorite moments legitimately, which usually irks me a little bit, but there was three minutes left to go in the fourth quarter and Russell Westbrook was on the wing. Buddy Heald was guarding Westbrook. Nemhard was guarding LeBron and the Pacers like to bring that really exaggerated early nail help to try to deter those drives and to put an extra body in the paint. So buddy's way past the nail, like way over. And you know, it's, it's, it's Russ. So you can probably like, all right, you know, Russ was making shots yesterday. So they get burned for it. It's a quick kick, one easy advance pass to there. Like the corner guy doesn't stun up to prevent the pass. Like they should have nexted it and Nemhard could have gone over there and at least contested the shot. But they just, you know, it's it's an off ball stunt and that was it. Westbrook drains that three. And in my head when it happened, I was like, well, that was unfortunate. And that's another one of those like passive help situations that I don't always fully understand. But probably a good thing because I bet Russ is going to keep shooting now. Mm-hmm. And so like two possessions later, he has the ball on the wing, like out of an, I think it maybe it occurred out of an offensive rebound. I don't remember the exact sequencing, but Austin Reeves is wide open right to his left in the corner before Nemhard can get scrambled out of the offensive rebounding situation. Russ looks at him, doesn't give him the ball. Anthony Davis has Buddy Heald guarding him right in front of him on the block. And Anthony Davis like doesn't seal him really hard, like doesn't demand the ball against Buddy Heald. He just kind of stands there. And Russ isn't looking at him. And Russ drives across the lane to his right and bricks a layup. And, like, I do think that there's some unfair piling on that goes on to Westbrook at times. And a lot for a lot of that game, he had a pretty decent game last night. But, like, that process was just not very good um, all the way around for the Lakers. And the reverse setting, I think that what you're saying, there is some truth in that. And that, like, even if we look back at the Brooklyn uh, win that they had here recently. Another good win for the Pacers. They deserve to win it. But like when you watch it from the Brooklyn side of things, their attention to detail was so poor at the beginning of that fourth quarter. Um, I think they had four turnovers. They got outscored 20 to six. And those turnovers were just feeding the beast for Benedict Mather and getting out in, uh, in transition. Like he mm-hmm. really was spearheading that similar to what happened over that like two minute stretch at the beginning of the fourth quarter last night, where literally like from the nine, let me see here. The 959 mark to the 738 mark, the Pacers went on a 10-0 run. So the Pac- the Lakers were up 17 with 10 minutes to go in the game. And within 
a little over two minutes, 10 points of that was gone. Mostly because Aaron Neesmith made a three where it looked like the Lakers had never seen Chicago action before in their lives. Like, I don't know what they were doing on that. They, They weren't switching up the line. Austin Reeves was just kind of standing there and then they watched Aaron Neesmith shoot a three and then Matherin got out on the break twice. And then Neesmith made another three in transition, which, you know, the Pacers are doing a lot to generate those transition threes. And that puts a lot of pressure on defenses, especially if you're like, Hey, my ankle's kind of hurting and it's kind of hard for me to get up and down the court right now. It's a great idea for the Pacers to be pushing the pace even more in that type of a setting. But, um, yeah, so I think that they play with an edge and in, in both of these games, it seemed like their opponent just didn't have, um, a super high attention to detail, but I guess, you know, that's the price you pay. But then you do wonder like if, you know, not that they were necessarily playing the Nets or the Lakers, but if you get in a playoff situation, is that going to even out and what would happen in some of those situations, similar to what we laid out on the prior podcast, whenever I talked about some of the trapping they were doing, whether it was against LaMelo Ball or Eric Gordon in Houston with the switch to blitz or, you know, doing some of the hedging against Franz Wagner and uh, some of those other coverages while then they were trapping all the bully drives against Toronto in the second half. Does that still work if the team's fully healthy? If Pascal Siakam's out there, if Kevin Porter Jr.'s out there, if Paolo Bancaro and Wendell Carter Jr. are out there? Um, you know, I don't know the answer to that because they might make other adjustments. Maybe the Pacers would do something else defensively that I don't, you know, that I don't foresee coming and, and they still win all those games. That's possible. But I just don't know because I haven't seen it. Um, last night I did think defensively, I can get your feedback on it. I did think they did some good things defensively. In addition to what Andrew Nemhard was doing, I thought that they schemed pretty well around what Anthony Davis has been doing. I thought that they were coming in very early and high on the roll two nining to try to tag that out. They're practically playing pack line in the paint. Anytime Anthony Davis was catching it at the post, that's why they got some of those defensive three violations, which I thought was okay because, you know, the Lakers don't have a ton of shooting. That's a good gamble to make. And they were putting extra bodies in the paint and they're, they, they were more sound with it than what they've been in the past. Like I thought it looked pretty decent, but again, like if we talk about the Clippers game, we can see like one pretty main difference between that. But I guess, what did you think overall of, of their defense last night? Yeah, I thought the defense was, was pretty solid last night. And miles has just been, he's been really good. He's been really fun to watch on that end. And especially compared to the Clippers game, like the Clippers game, it felt like they let up 8 million backdoor cuts, especially early in the game. Um, and it was interesting, too, because, like, um, I, I don't know if a, a lot of – because I didn't watch that game right when it happened. I watched it today, um, so I was off the t- timeline when that was happening. But, obviously, if Issa Zubac had the game of his life, was practically Akeem Olajuwon out there. Um, most of it didn't come against Miles. Like, a lot of it was we gave up really bad – offensive rebounds and uh, we weren't boxing out or, you know, there were three offensive players in the paint and we didn't have anybody there. So I I don't know if you felt the same with that. I just felt like there was the off ball defense was pretty lacking, especially on the weak side. I thought in that game, let's talk about Ivica Shaq for a moment, actually, (laughs) because um, something that bothered with me about that was like miles got into early. Well, he had the contact issue and he got into early foul trouble and that's why he wasn't playing a lot of the minutes out there. None of his fouls came against Zubots. Like, I don't know where the internet got that idea from. Like, they're like, well, Zubots got Miles into foul trouble. Like, he he never fouled Zubots. The fouls came from drives in transition because they weren't loading up quickly enough in transition and what you're saying, because they were loading up too early in the half court and then they were getting back cut or, you know, other stuff was happening. And that was the main difference that I was about ready to bring up between the Clippers and the Lakers because they were doing the exact same thing against 
Zubots in certain situations as they were doing against Anthony Davis. They were bringing like Tyrese as the low man over to two nine, really high into the paint very early with one guy over there. And then the Clippers were just cutting right behind Tyrese. The Lakers were just standing there. Like when, when the, when the Pacers were packing in, they weren't doing a whole lot of movement Mm -hmm. to disrupt any of that. And the Clippers were so, um, that stood out, but yeah, I mean that that kind of bugged me because I'm like, Miles did not rack up a bunch of fouls against Zubots' his physicality. Like he racked up fouls against the Clippers' guards in part because of other defensive failings around him. Like not entirely. The very first bucket Zubots had was in the post over Miles. He had another one later on where he got on the wrong side of Zubots in the post and just got completely dislodged. I think some of the rebounds did. I did keep a tracker because somebody asked me how much I would assess. So of the 31 points, I think I had it this way. I think about 11 was on IJAX by my tally. Um, IJAX did not have a fun time in that, no, in that no, Clippers he game. He, he did not. Um, four points was against Neesmith where he didn't sink in quick enough. And then he didn't, he got out rebounded on one of them. Six points. I just assessed to the low man in general. Like that's mm-hmm. anybody that wasn't coming over when they should have been, when miles was supposed to be playing higher where they wanted him to against the pick and roll ball handler. And then I had eight points against miles and then two points against Kendall Brown. Cause like Zubats only drew three fouls and they didn't even occur till the fourth quarter. And that in part was the problem. Like, yeah, I think he had a, a I think 11 points out of the post. The rest of the points were out of, you know, out of cuts, pick and roll, you know, miscellaneous, whatever else it was. I don't have that in front of me on synergy, but like, I don't know. Like, I, it wasn't like he was just being a physical menace over the top of people. Like, yes, on the offensive glass, he was, but almost more of the problem to me was that nobody was around him. Yeah. Like, he was catching, like, the one possession with Jalen and Isaiah Jackson were just none, neither of them knew what rotation they were making. Jalen went to rotate out to the perimeter, and then Ajax was just kind of standing there, and he just got a wide open dunk. Like, that happened a couple times, or there's no tag coming over or the tag was really early and then they were getting back cut. Like a lot of it was just too easy for him. It wasn't even just that he was, you know, overpowering or bullying somebody. It was just that the overall defense was just not very good. Um, So there's that, that was narrative game number one, which is a whole nother talking point, but did you have anything else that you wanted to touch on from the Clippers game? I mean, I think that was the main takeaway that they gave up 31 and 29 to Zubas. I did not have that on my bingo card for this week. Yeah, I didn't really have anything else I wanted to add on from the Clippers game. Um, yeah. I thought what I wanted to go to, because we mentioned Ajax, how did you feel about his playing time or lack thereof yesterday in the Lakers game? Yeah, so that's happened to him a couple times here lately. I think that he played, what, seven or eight minutes against the Nets, too? I don't I don't think he had a huge amount of playing time there. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of that was foul trouble. He made the one error. Like, the one thing that I, I greatly enjoyed from the Lakers game, because I have a list of things that I, I greatly enjoyed in case we talked about that, was that at the 11-minute mark of the second quarter when Rick Carlisle called, like, the rage timeout because they made the egregious error in transition, and he, like, called them all over there and told them, I'm like, this is what I wanted, like, all of last year. The transition defense was so bad, and I just wanted there to be accountability. And I'm not saying that there wasn't. They might have been having those conversations all the time in the huddles and other stuff. But that was very clearly why that timeout was called. It was less than a minute into the second quarter, and guys did not get back. So um, that was there. And then, I, yeah, you like you mentioned, he got a couple fouls, and then he had made a mistake. Um I think the one that they pulled him out on was yet again, he had stuck his hip out for mm-hmm. no apparent reason on a, on a screen. And maybe that's something they're really trying to get him to work on. So maybe they, that's why they pulled him. But 
I mean, I would like to see him be getting more minutes, but, you know, it seems very much like the team's making it that these guys have to earn it and that there's people behind them. But then Goga didn't play really all that long either. When he picked up the three-shot foul on Austin Reeves, I think that pretty much ended his night. So, yeah. I mean, we had James Johnson minutes for I don't know how long he played there at the end of the third, beginning of the fourth. Yeah, I think that's – it's just tough because on one hand I get – uh, and I don't disagree at all with the uh, the idea and mindset of like uh, everybody needs to earn their minutes and, and holding guys accountable, but also like, and that's not a shot at James Johnson, but I just, I, where I'm at, I would just so much rather see Isaiah Jackson get, yeah. get minutes than James Johnson. Like, what is, what is that doing? Like, I, and I, I don't know. I, I know I'm making that too simplistic. I understand that every single guy has to play on the team, but it's just, I, it's, I don't know. That, that was just something that stuck out to me a little bit yesterday. And again, that's when we're talking about what direction everything is. It's not that the team like needs to lose games, but it's just how you're playing them. I don't know. It 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 definitely stood out a little bit for me yesterday because that's just happened multiple times this year. So, and I think well, yeah. to be fair, part of that is on IJAX, but yeah. No, and it is, but it's like as long as it applies to everybody, like it shouldn't just apply to the to the young players, but as the to the veterans as well. And I think that you know. When they were in Houston and Buddy gave up the really egregious drive to Eric Gordon, they did pull him and he didn't seem particularly happy about it. But I do mm-hmm. credit them that that still applied to Buddy because there was a stretch against the Hornets where like three straight trips in a row, Buddy made mistakes late in the game. And then Benedict Matherin did not finish and Buddy did. And I was kind of surprised by that. So I was kind of surprised because but like at the beginning of the fourth quarter of that Hornets game, Matherin and LaMelo Ball were really kind of in that scoring battle and Matherin had been playing very well. And then they brought Buddy back in and Buddy had like a two minute stretch where he just was not playing well and he continued to be in the game. So I think my opinion on it would be like, if this is your approach to the entire roster and we have seen them, like I said, they did that with Buddy in Houston. They've pulled Tyrese uh, a couple times for defensive issues. Like when they played the heat and he messed up the split cuts against Bam on consecutive possessions, they pulled Tyrese out so if they're going to do it with everybody then I get it but I would have more of a problem as you say like if it was just like applying to Isaiah Jackson but it wasn't going to apply if Miles made mistakes then I would probably have an issue not that Miles makes a lot of you know egregious errors on defense or something to be pulled for anyways but um, I think overall like yeah I mean we've talked about that before with you know my surprise when James Johnson was in the rotation over O'Shea Brissett but you know that's the difference an approach though too because I mean I think they liked from the prior games against Brooklyn when they had had James Johnson matched with Kevin Durant's minutes at least in part so if you're trying to win a game and you want somebody else to throw out there rather than just letting Kevin Durant score like 20 straight points against Buddy like what happened in the fourth quarter then maybe you're willing to do it but if it's about next season you're probably still going to be wanting to get Isaiah Jackson reps even if he does make mistakes or you know still be playing O'Shea Brissett or Terry Taylor, which O'Shea is back in the rotation now anyways. But um, I guess it just depends on what your viewpoint is of what this team is and what your plan is for next season. Definitely. Um, What else do you want to hit on from this? Let me see. Well, what else was your main standouts from the Lakers game? Did you have any favorite moments? Because I felt like there was a lot of good things that happened in that game so that we can up our own vibes on this podcast. Uh. Ooh, that's a good question. Um, I think well, when Andrew slid over uh as the low man and uh had that vertical contest, I think that was one of my favorite moments. Like you you highlighted that in the article, but that was one of my favorite moments in the game. So I think that was just like one of the really nice plays that stood out from him. 
Um, like you can always see the stuff that he, he's doing at the point of attack with his chest out, as you mentioned, but I thought that was really cool to see. Um, I thought, especially because Aaron didn't have like the best game. It was cool to see him hit his two threes late and was a big part of the run. Um, I about lost my mind when Aaron Neesmith drove from behind a flare screen with his left hand against Anthony Davis and finished at the rim. Yeah. He didn't didn't finish it with his left hand. He right-handed it as he normally would, but he successfully got himself to the basket with his left hand and finished with Anthony Davis there. Like that was when we should have known Mark that something good was going to happen in that game. Cause that it might be like, if I had to make a list of the most, actually I'll just ask you, what do you think is the most perilous thing that a pacer does on this roster? Because Aaron Neesmith driving left would be very high for me. Um, that's a good question. Aaron Neesmith driving left. Um, this this is a tough question. Uh, Benedict going around a screen on defense. Um, oh yes, that's pretty perilous. You like you just kind of know what the result's going to be, anyways. Um. I feel like buddy self-creation can get a little dicey. (laughs) It can get a little dicey. Buddy self-creation, definitely. Uh, Jalen. Yes. (laughs) Jalen doing like anything that includes dribbling, I think, is is a fair point. A one dribble pull-up or. Liable to be a travel. Yes. (laughs) It's. It is. Or like a catapult one dribble pull-up. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Those feel like the most perilous plays. But back to the good vibes, since, you know, I'm talking about peril. Um. I did want to bring up too, like Tyrese Halliburton. He has 40 assists over the last three games and zero turnovers, Mark. Pretty good, huh? Yeah, pretty good. And 60 points. 60 points over the last three games. And that almost more than the assisting last night, which he had several, you know, jaw dropping dimes as he normally does in every game. But some of his finishes over Anthony Davis at the rim were pretty crazy, especially the one, I think it was in the second half. They had they ran the action for him to come off with his left, and he got and finished. He did a wrong-footed layup off of his left foot on the left side of the basket, and I was like, that that's notable. Mm-hmm. That is something there, and he is starting to get to the rim a little bit more. Um, and I, I don't think Anthony Davis's defense was great on the one possession, but he had some very crafty finishes. And then, like, I loved, from the assist standpoint, that stride stop. Um, where he turned around and then used like a fake shot pass to Miles right under the basket where it looked like he was going to go up into a pull-up out of the stride stop and then threw it underneath. Like Tyrese just does so many pleasant things every game and so many things that make you have to watch it again. And like, that's my favorite aesthetic in basketball, I think, is the player who makes me have to rewind things multiple times to fully understand what they just accomplished on the basketball court. Like even just listening to him explain, I think NBA.com shared it today where he was asked in the locker room, like what he was seeing on that final play and him going through, you know, saying that, where he saw Anthony Davis between miles and buddy. And that he knew that if he threw it to buddy, that it'd be a hard closeout from Anthony Davis. And that wasn't the shot. So that he pivoted around and then he saw LeBron and he's like, if LeBron took a step, then I was going to throw it to Benedict, but he didn't. So then I threw it to Andrew Nemhard, and then Andrew made the shot. Like just, just listening to him go through the process of the wheels that turn in his head and how quickly he, pro- he's able to think through that on the court. Like this is probably going to sound ridiculous because people, other people that are listening, watch him do these things every game. They know what it's like, but um, that's like my favorite thing to watch in basketball is that type of player who really thinks the game and that I have to 
really dig in to be able to understand what they're doing on the court. So he had several of those types of moments last night, regardless of what the Lakers um, level of compete was throughout the entirety of the game. Tyree still um, continues to be really impressive, especially over these last three games. Yeah, no, I agree. I think um, my favorite play from him was the one, I think he was driving off the far. So off the left side when it was, uh, cause it was in the second half. Um, and he drove into the lane. I think he had, there were like three guys who overhelped onto him and miles was in on the left side dunker spot. And he of course did his jump pass. I actually, I shouted you out on the ding, obviously on your, your, your article that you wrote, but like he had the jump pass to goes up, like he's going to take the shot and then tosses it to miles. I think he actually surprised miles with it. Cause miles like bobbles it and then goes up for the dunk. Cause there's nobody around. him. I'm like, this is it, just watching. It's like, this guy's just in complete control of the game. Like there is, no one's speeding him up. No one's slowing him down. Like he's just playing at his own pace and his own lane. And he's such a joy to watch. Like I just, every time, like, it, it, I don't know, even in the games where it feels like he's struggling to kind of find his rhythm, he always finds other ways to impact the game, which is another thing that I just find a way to appreciate because I like players who are capable of finding multiple ways to impact the game. Um, he's He's awesome. He really is awesome. And I will say, too, that I kind of mocked the Charlotte Hornets a little bit on our prior podcast about why would anyone play drop coverage, and that was just death for them on how many possessions in a row, and that they finally had to bring Plumlee up to the top, and then Tyrese just rejected it with him way too high. Well, these last two teams played drop coverage against Tyrese, and obviously he's putting up the numbers that he has. He's not had a turnover in either game. Um, but against the Clippers, I did think that you know them having Zubots, this was one other other thing we probably could have brought up from that game. Them cross-matching Miles and and Jalen, I'm going to be really curious to see how many more teams continue to do that. Because they had Zubots on Jalen from the very beginning. Obviously, Jalen was willing and active to shoot into that space. He had 19 points or whatever at halftime. Only had four after halftime, which they ended up switching the matchup back about midway through the third quarter. So that likely mm-hmm. played into it some. But it does alter the Pacers' approach because it's either put Jalen in a corner and let Zubots literally just stand in the restricted area, which a few times he probably should have had defensive three-second violations, or it's mile it's marginalized miles and put Jalen into the pick and roll and and move from there. Which again, like we don't know what what the trajectory is for the team, but as far as Miles's numbers, he didn't have a great overall game against the Clippers by comparison to what he's been doing of late. So, and I do think that that was part of the reason why he had Amir Coffey or Marcus Morris on him. And when he was in the pick and roll, they were pretty much late switching that or switching it. And, you know, it's not the same as him, like getting the switch early on last night against Dennis Schroeder, for instance. So Denver also did that. And when Denver did it, they had, I think that was just more about Jokic than it was about the Pacers, but they put Jokic on Jalen and then put Aaron Gordon on miles in the first quarter. And then had Jeff green come in and check miles and, Eventually, Rick countered and put Isaiah Jackson in, and that was in part why Isaiah Jackson and and Miles played a few minutes together because that was putting Jokic into the pick and roll because they were using Isaiah Jackson as the screener so that they could take advantage of of Jokic and drop. But Miles took four shots, and three of them were threes. So you could see against the Clippers that a lot more of his shots were threes because he was out on the perimeter more, and he he hasn't shot the ball well in L.A., although he has shot the ball pretty well, over 40%, I think, on the season so far, and the games that he has been available. But that was one extra thing that I just – I'm surprised that more teams aren't doing that, honestly, because of what we just mentioned with Jalen and the perilous play. Like, you can – 
there's going to be some games where he might come out and shoot the ball with a lot of confidence like he did in the first half. But I think if I'm Ty Lue, I'm probably just going to bet on that regression and the fact that he's not going to beat you off the dribble a lot of the time. Like he did attack the rim a couple times in that game, which was good to see, but I don't think that's going to be a real consistency from him or even like you could probably even get away with that to a degree. If you put your big on Aaron Neesmith in certain cases, just because, you know, his attack of closeouts has been fairly rough as well mm-hmm. um, for the most part. So I do wonder if that's something that teams will go to. If, if miles continues to show what he did, I was surprised how long it took Minnesota to go to that. I mean, he was just, they were just watching him shoot with loads of confidence with Gobert in the drop with Carl Anthony Towns. Like when they were having to scramble, when Tyrese was rejecting screens and having to make emergency rotations, the ball kept getting to miles. And then he was knocking down those shots. And it wasn't until late in the third quarter when they finally were like, okay, let's put Kyle Anderson on miles and put, you know, Gobert on Jalen. And then as it turned out, the Pacers were going to go with their regular bench rotation anyway. So both of them came out, but like I, I just I I do wonder if the more the season progresses, if that's something that Miles will start to see a little bit more of, similar to what was the case with that. If Jalen continues, um, with the way that his shot has been up and down so much so far this year, but that was just one extra thing that I wanted to bring up from the Clipper game, in addition to the drop coverage difference that, like, there was a pretty big difference between Rozier t- chasing Tyrese and Rivy pursuit and what Terrence Mann was doing. I thought he was actually impacting some of the passing angles and stuff that Tyrese was doing, even though he mm-hmm. still had, you know, pretty gaudy passing numbers in that game. So I do apologize to the Charlotte Hornets that I mock drop coverage as <laughs> a, it's a viable defensive um, ploy against Tyrese because it, it did work to a degree in the Clippers game. And also, though this is not a Minnesota Timberwolves podcast, I do want to give a really big shout out to my guy Jaden McDaniels because I will He's say so that good. Oh my god, that was the best anyone has defended Tyrese yeah. as a primary since Tyrese has been a Pacer by a pretty large margin. And I thought OG Ananobi had a few pretty decent individual possessions. He wasn't guarding Tyrese full time in that Raptors game, but that was the best anybody has done against Tyrese. Jaden had him seeing stars. That was, that was some of the best defense I've seen somebody play all year. He's so good. You know, like I could, and especially too, like he's gotten better at attacking closeouts and finishing inside the arc. He's just guy. He's one of my favorite players to watch in the league. He's so talented. Um, and it just makes me think about, wow, what if the Pacers had a guy like that? Um, not, not to, you know, be unfair to the roster, but yes, it's, well, it's just it's a real competitive advantage because like I wrote the article about that. Like I wanted to talk about the way that Utah, not that Utah are why do I call him Utah? Rudy Gobert playing <laughs> Utah. Minnesota covered that because like their defense has obviously had issues with Gobert and Towns on the court at the same time. And the fact that they're mixing so many coverages like what the Pacers mm-hmm. were trying to do last year. But Tyrese very Tyrese is a guy who uses screens for the most part. And from the very beginning of that game, he was rejecting a lot of the screens in order to get Gobert on the other side and be able to attack into that open gap, which is a smart strategy on Tyrese's part. I totally get why you're doing that. But when you're not using the screen, you're not exactly sh- shedding the guy who's 6'9", who's defending you at the point of attack. And as it turned out, Jaden ended up with like three blocks on Tyrese in that game. But the yeah. other thing that he did that I – the Lakers did it once – is he was ducking under on several screens. And so was Austin Rivers. And so was, uh, yeah, so was Austin Rivers. And so there was one other person who was doing it. I can't remember now, but. Is it Jalen Noel? No, 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 no. It was, uh, I don't, I don't remember. But anyways, there was yeah. three people who ducked under against him. And the difference is that Jade McDaniels has all this length. So like, it's a really competitive advantage in the NBA these days. If you can duck under to take away the drive and also surge back out to take away the pull-up three. 
Um, I don't think Austin Rivers is completely capable of, I mean, he's a fine defender. He's okay. But like to surge back out and, and to take away the pull-up. And I wanted to see Tyrese be more aggressive in those situations, looking for his pull-up shot first and foremost. And there was a couple possessions last night where Austin Reeves also ducked under in those situations and Tyrese didn't automatically look for a shot. So um, maybe that's something, another thing that teams might toy around with, but since we are to that portion of the pod, I do want to get your thoughts on tomorrow night's big game, the Super Bowl of you know, uh, trade narratives, Pacers Kings. Can I just say, why do we have, like, do you, I went on a big rant on game theory with Sam uh, last week on this. I am so tired of people trying to relitigate the trade a quarter of the way into an NBA season. Like, I don't, can we just enjoy both teams and let things yeah. play out? Like, that's what I want. The Sacramento Kings have been my favorite team to watch in, in basketball this year. Like, did you watch King Suns last night? I'm assuming not because Pacers game is No, I was on. watching the Pacer Laker game. If you get a chance to watch this game on, on playback, oh my God, it was so fun, Caitlin. Like, I think this game started maybe 25 minutes before the Pacers game and it finished an hour and 10 minutes before the Pacers game was done. Like, that's the kind of game it was. Just like up and down, back and forth. The They they got a little bit like... Uh, I mean, Mikel Bridges was awesome on De'Aaron Fox. De'Aaron Fox probably had his worst offensive game of the season. Um, but they are they just play so fun. They really have leaned into what Domas does. And um, I still – I feel like part of – every day that I go on Twitter, I'm just thankful that you and I aren't the Sabonis defender pod anymore because um, that was such a tiring time. Um, like, I still just hate the way that he gets talked about. Um, and I just – like, yeah, I – I, I, I think I look so much at what this has been for both teams and I can understand where both teams came from on it. And that's good enough for me. I don't really think that we have to be like, this is a win. This is a loss. Uh, I don't really care to relitigate it. I think that this is clearly the right direction for Indiana. Um, but again, like we're talking about, I really want to see them fully lean into it. And I think they will. I'm not trying to be pessimistic, but I, until we actually see it happen, I'm just I'm interested um, to know what that's going to look like. So that's my long winded way of saying I'm so tired of hearing about who did or didn't win the trade. I'm pretty tired of hearing about that in general, regardless yeah. if it's this trade or another trade. But um, my main takeaways for Pacers Kings happening is that I will say that on the mini podcast I was on last year where people wanted to ask me about trades and they would always ask me like mix and mass questions as if it was like a sorting hat from Harry Potter on which team miles or Sabonis would fit on. Because like, it was funny to me because like there were blazer fans that all wanted Sabonis because his dad played there. I'm like, miles makes a lot more sense for the blazers than Sabonis does. And then in the reverse with the warriors, people would always be like, Oh, they need to get miles. And I, I was like, Sabonis makes a lot more sense for the way that the warriors play and flow game. And there are modified split cuts and the idea that when you play with Steph Curry and you play in that warrior system, you you have to know where the ball is and you have to know where Steph Curry is 100% of the time. And you have to be able to make reads very quickly. And that's far more a Sabonis thing than a Miles thing. Mm-hmm. But I I forget which show I was doing. And I was like, you know, it would be amazing. Like, I, I'm so sad that we didn't get to see Sabonis in the Warriors system. Plus being able to have Draymond Green out there with him defensively would cover up some of that. And now we're getting a peek at Sabonis in the Warriors system because Mike Brown's imported a lot of that to Sacramento. So that's nice to see. Um, You know, obviously De'Aaron Fox and Tyrese Halliburton splitting up has been good for both of them. Uh, It seems as though Miles and Sabonis splitting up has been good for both of them as well. So 
that's fun on both sides. And like, I will say, I, I don't need any of the narratives. Like I can just watch it for the basketball sake Mm -hmm. and I don't really need like a one game referendum on it, but I do think it is really fun. Like from the sake that like the fastest, quickest scouting report on a player is to go watch them play against their old team. Yeah. So like when Tyrese played against the Kings last year and they went weak to switch and it, it bothered him, like he had 15 assists, but he struggled from the field and you could see how much they had to alter stuff. I mean, now they are running more stuff for him to get to his left. So it probably wouldn't be as much of an adjustment this year as what it was then when Davian Mitchell did it. But like, that was, that was really fun to watch him navigate that. And then like, so I'm going to be interested to see like how miles comes out and defends Sabonis from the tip, because like when you've watched Sabonis play against Steven Adams, or you've watched Sabonis play against Thad in the past and the way both of them know, knew his tendencies and you know, it bothered his ability to get to his left in the lane. Like if miles is going to be keyed in on some of that, and what the Pacers do with regards to that, since Rick Carlisle was the coach last year, like Mike Brown didn't coach Tyrese Halliburton. So um, that might be a little bit different. He didn't go to Buddy Heald either, but um, this is that type of stuff. I think from games against like, it's not from the revenge factor for me. It's almost just learning more about the player. Cause you're going to learn a lot from the, from the way that they guard him and, and the way that they game plan around that. So um, that's probably the thing I'm most looking forward to, but like this entire week has kind of been a narrative nightmare. That was kind of another yes. thing that I wanted to touch on because like, you know, Zubots, I'm sure, read the rumors about the Clippers being interested in Miles Turner. I'm sure that wasn't completely in the back of his head while he was out there getting his 31 and 29 game. And then we know we go to the Lakers, and I don't know how you felt about that, but it seemed very convenient to me that certain sources in the Lakers locker room had leaked to Dave McMenamin the day before the Pacers were in town that they feel like they could contend this year and want them to, you know, make what moves are necessary to do that right when the Pacers were there. So that discussion occurred all day where it felt like it was borderline a pro day for Buddy and Miles. Like not not from Buddy and Miles' perspective, but the way that the conversation around that was being discussed. And then also like the Benedict Mather and stuff with LeBron. I don't know where you were at with that, but like I just do not care. Same. Like like I I'm totally moved past that and I didn't really care in the moment when he said it to be quite honest like I think he was more just speaking about his own confidence and the fearlessness that he plays with and just happened to evoke LeBron like I don't think he was intending to poke at LeBron when yeah, he said I, it. I thought that was pretty clear like I that's one of those things where it was like I just wish people would read the full article or watch the video instead of looking at the quote and retweeting it well and um, then people were so. taking the video of him like, it's like he later had qualified those comments in July and people were acting like this had just happened. Yeah. And they're like, well, now he's walking it back. I'm like, no, not really. And like, why do we even really care about this? Like, to be honest, I wish I had that degree of confidence in anything that I did. Yeah. <laughs> like, I do not. So kudos to Benedict Matherin. I don't think it seemed like LeBron actually cared all that much. And like those two things between the Buddy and Miles potential trade and Westbrook and Benedict was like dominating the entire conversation about that game. And that's kind of why I wanted to write the article the way that I did, because, you know, Tyrese and Andrew Nemhard kind of wrangled that back. Like by the end of the night, we didn't care about any of that. We cared about the fact that Andrew Nemhard made a game winner, that his teammates were celebrating him and clearly have good chemistry on the floor and have clearly come together a lot quicker than any of us thought they were going to, or at least I'll speak for myself, a lot faster than I thought they were going to. And, you know, was playing pretty darn good defense against LeBron James after, you know, having several moments this year of playing pretty darn good defense as the top primary option in a way that Tyrese Halliburton 
quite frankly, doesn't have to do because Andrew Nemhardt's out there and available to do it. So I was very happy that the basketball game ended up being about the basketball game. And I have similar hopes for tomorrow night against the Kings, but I feel like that's pretty naive on my part. <laughs> yeah, I'm a little bit worried about that. I just want it to be fun. I I think it could be a really fun game based on how both teams play stylistically. So that has me excited. That's that's I think all a I lot could. of threes will be attempted. Uh, many like the Kings took, I think, 45 threes the other night Uh, with like, I think there was like six or seven minutes still left in the fourth. They again, if you that seriously, you you have to watch last night's game. They were so fun. Um, The Suns were fun, too. Devin Booker had like just a scoring masterclass, but it was a fun game. Um, Continues to just be one of my favorite teams to watch. But yeah, I think unless you have anything else you wanted to add, I think that ends this for me. No, I think that wraps up this. Yeah, this wraps up narrative week. We'll be able to move on to the Utah Jazz. I don't think there's any, you know, outstanding beef with the Utah Jazz. Is there? Uh, no, especially with Rudy gone. We don't have to talk about the scuffle from last year anymore. So no, like Boyan Bogdanovich narratives to handle after now that he's in Detroit, like all that's uh, out the window. No rehashing think... the once upon a time when the Pacers were going to trade for Mike Conley. Oh, I forget. Uh, I always forget about that. Yeah, that was like an everyday occurrence. How the Pacers needed to get. We that should do a uh, Pacers, uh, Pacers Tyreek Evans uh, pod sometime. Oh yeah, <laughs> deep stuff there. Very. Uh, yeah. Well, Caitlin, this was a this was a blast as always. Uh, to everyone listening, if you haven't already, be sure to go check out Caitlin's article. It was very very good, and I enjoyed the hell out of it. If you haven't uh, rate, rated and reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, be sure to do that as well. And most importantly. Have a good rest of your day, and thank you for listening.